Okay, well, good morning, church, and uh, good morning to all of you who are visiting, everyone who is recovering on whatever it is you're recovering from. Easter, that's what I'm recovering from, softball, MCT Productions, any of that? Yeah, probably, yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, <laughs> anyway, my voice is a little scratchy, and I feel as though last week was like this big whirlwind, right? But today, we're going to talk about something that I feel we are long overdue to discuss. And inside of this particular lesson that I'm bringing to you today is a question that has bothered me for a while. Um, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'll present it to you here soon. Um, I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you I don't have a very good answer for the question. <laughs> so you're going to have to help sort of uh, flush some of this out. And really what's happened is this, is that a lesson that I thought would simply be a standalone lesson um, just got out of control, and it's probably going to be a two-parter. Now, that's good news for you, because that means it's half as long uh, for today. But uh, there are several things that I want to talk about. I, I'm just fascinated by humanity. I really am. And I'll tell you this right now, it's so difficult for me to pull up my phone and read the news on my new Apple News app and uh, look at all of the things that are happening in this world. And of course, you're trying to read it through the lens of what happens to be many times a very liberal media that um, is trying to provoke reaction. But somewhere in there, you'll find some truth. And I'm just amazed. I'm amazed by politics. I'm amazed by how humans interact with each other from foreign countries and all this different stuff about humanity. And I think what it, what's happening is, is I've begun sort of an ongoing list in my mind of the innate characteristics that make us unique as organisms, right? That make us unique. And honestly, I'll, I think it points to a creator. I think if you find a characteristic that is inside of humanity that you're not finding in any other level, at any other level of any other organism on the face of the earth, then there is a very <laughs> obvious question that evolution has to answer, and that is how did it come about? Some of those characteristics include things like this. We have inside of us a strange appreciation for beauty. That's unique. Uh, I've mentioned this before. There isn't another animal on the planet that pauses and says, oh, look at that sunset. Ah, you know, <laughs> like, w w meanwhile, hum humans, we're, we're snapping pictures and, and whatnot, right? We make calendars out of this stuff. We set up these, these buildings that are specific to the display of art, right? That's very unique to what it means to be human. We also, I mentioned this at a conference I was speaking at yesterday, are very uh, time-oriented. Uh, yesterday I mentioned that we're very future-oriented. So as creatures, we are often dreaming and envisioning and planning the future. It's something that we can't necessarily see, but in our mind's eye, we're going to plan out every detail, those of us who are planners especially, right? Those of us who are dreamers on the, on the right brain side, we're, we're dreaming of spaceships and stuff. But still, it's all very future-oriented. And then I would say this, that we are also past-oriented because what also makes us unique is we stand on traditions. Many times we don't even know where their traditions come from, right? But every culture has at some level a tradition, right? And so that makes us kind of unique. Another thing that we are wired for is worship. And ultimately, ultimately, we long to worship 
something. I believe it's our creator. I think we're, we're longing after the thing, whatever it might be, that created us. We believe that's our God, right? And we're wired for worship. But sometimes, because of our free will, we choose not to worship necessarily him. And he allows us the capacity where we can worship whatever we want. And so we'll worship other gods. We'll worship things, right? We'll worship ourselves, right? But we're wired for worship. And the other thing that we're wired for is this idea, and it, and it correlates very closely with worship. We're wired to pray. Every culture across the planet, throughout human history, understands prayer. Most of the religions that you find have some form or essence of prayer. I mean, think about that for a second. It's, it's like we're calling out to something, right? Depending on the religion that you're in, sometimes what you're calling out to is that inner self. You know, it's, it, who knows, right? But you're, you're praying, and many times if we were to say, what does prayer look like? If I were to show you a snapshot of people in Africa who are praying, it's going to look in many ways similar to what you might do as well. Hands closed, right? Sometimes interdigitation, right? Like that. Uh, heads bowed, that type of thing. So we're designed to pray, and we've been praying in all sorts of different ways throughout human history. So why this question? And the question that I'm referring to is this. If you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, Luke 11 is a crazy chapter, all right? Uh, now, remember, when we had talked about the Gospels, those of you who have been here, the Gospels are essentially four books in what we call the New Testament. That's the second half of the Bible, okay? So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Synoptics means same, all right, are seen through the same lens, and so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar to each other, and the Gospel of John kind of stands alone on its own. Luke is a very uh, methodical writer. He basically gathered up a bunch of manuscripts and whatnot. He was not an apostle. He was actually some physician who would be a follower of Jesus Christ. But he interviewed people and he gathered up all these manuscripts and he wrote a two-part novel. And basically the first part was the book of Luke. The second part was Acts. All right? And put together, you have somebody who wrote almost as much as the apostle Paul. But Luke... He is very chronological in a lot of the ways in which he writes, especially when you get to the book of Acts, right? And so when we get to Luke 11, something has happened in the story of Jesus Christ. If you back up just two chapters, you'll find in Luke chapter 9 that there is a pivotal point in Jesus' ministry here on earth. In Luke 9, you'll find this phrase that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus has been doing all this ministry, teaching and whatnot, way up in Galilee. All right? And Galilee's in the northern section of, of this Mediterranean area. area. That's the Jordan River. is the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea down here. Jerusalem's in the south, right? Jerusalem is where the temple is. And so it seems like Jesus, the Son of God, would be down there, but not, no, not, actually not really. He's going to do most of his ministry up here in Galilee. But it says in Luke chapter 9, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, he is basically moving his direction towards what would ultimately be his death, but really the fulfillment of why he's here in the first place. So we see that he's moving that direction, and when you get to Luke 11, it says this. It says, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, 
After he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Why? Why is he asking that? Think about it. That's a bizarre question to be asking right now. Right? These disciples have been through a lot. Right? And we're not even sure which disciple this is. But hasn't Jesus already instructed them to pray? If you go to Matthew 6, actually starting in Matthew chapter 5, you're going to find a thing called the Sermon on the Mount. That happens early in Jesus' ministry, like right after the temptation, right? And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's blasting the Pharisees because of the ways in which they pray, because they take their prayers, they turn them into this robotic sort of, uh, you know, I'm just going to go through the motions and say the right things. Hopefully people will see me. It'll draw attention to how spiritual I am. It'll exalt me above all these other people. And theoretically, I'm growing closer to God, which was all false. And Jesus addresses that in Matthew chapter 6, and he says, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? And we go through what we call the Lord's Prayer. In Luke 11, it's a little bit different. So some people have said, is this the same prayer? Is it a little bit uh, maybe out of place in terms of how people were recording it at that time? It could be, but most commentaries don't think so. They believe that this is Jesus sort of reiterating perhaps this prayer, which is why it's given a different title, the Matthew, it's called the Lord's Prayer, which isn't inspired. That's just what we call it. And in this one, it's called the Disciples Prayer. Okay? But it's interesting because if that's the case, was this disciple simply not there at the time when Jesus does the Sermon on the Mount? Did, w- I mean, was he not taking notes? Right? Did he forget? It's kind of like he, he, you wonder if Jesus isn't going to reply in the harshness that he usually directs towards Peter. Like, <laughs> come on. You have a little faith, you know. Open your ears, right? He who has ears, let him hear, that type of thing. No, he doesn't do any of that. In fact, if anything, it appears that Jesus has a very favorable response as to what comes next. But the question is this. Why are they asking this question? Were they completely unaware of what prayer was? Now think about it. I just told you that all humanity has some sense of what it means to pray. When you're teaching your children how to pray, long before you're teaching them about Jesus Christ, oh, they'll get it, right? It's easy to understand. They had some sense of that. Also remember that they're Jewish. They're not, a, they're not at all strangers to this idea of what it means to be people of prayer. So what was it? Was it because Jesus went off to a place and started to pray by himself? A lot of commentaries will say, yeah, it was his example. Well, maybe. So they looked at his example, and they're like, okay, I think that's how you do it, right? I'm going to confirm. Hey, Jesus, you know, like, is that what was happening? Is it perhaps that John the Baptist's disciples had some sort of an influence on them? Because look at what it says. It says, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. It's almost like, Hey, Jesus, John had something to share with his disciples, and you haven't really done that with us, right? If you look up the commentaries on that, what you'll find is is that many times a rabbi or a Jewish master would have a specific type of prayer that his followers would resuscitate or, you know, recite. Is that what's happening? Are they looking for their personal prayer that comes down from the rabbi? I mean, that could be the case, I suppose, right? 
I think there's something deeper that's happening at this place. I think what's happening is, is they do observe what Jesus is doing, but what they're observing is this. Something's going on that's stirring their hearts. Now, some people point out, perhaps it was the length of time. I mean, look at what Jesus does. He goes up to mountains and he prays. In fact, if you were to flip back one, one chapter, you'll find that he takes three of his disciples up to a mountain, at the top of a mountain with him, to observe something that we would later call the transfiguration. But he begins with praying. And while he's praying, the three that are with him, they fall asleep. They can't do it, right? Jesus is a marathon runner when it comes to prayer. Like, he'll go the whole night. Maybe that's what's so impressive. Maybe what they're asking about is, what is so different about your prayer that allows you to stretch that long into the evening? And some people have have suggested that. Remember this also, that as Jesus is about to give them the Lord's Prayer or perhaps the disciples' prayer, whichever you want to, however you want to look at that, he did warn them against vain repetitions. Isn't that funny? So in Matthew 6, he says, don't have these vain repetitions just like the Pharisees. We just talked about that, but here's the Lord's Prayer. And what's become of the Lord's Prayer? It's kind of a vain repetition. In fact, it's fun in a way because I'll, I'll go over it with people. I'll be like, so you understand, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You know, it, and you start walking through it, and they're like, well, I never really thought of that. Yeah, that's because it's become a vain repetition, all right? So the disciples can see this. They can see that Jesus isn't just somebody who has that vain repetition about it. Maybe they want to spend an entire night on a mountain alone. Think about Gethsemane also, much later. They still wouldn't make it through the evening, even when Jesus was telling them, I really need you to stay awake. I need you to stay in prayer. Here's what I believe. I think that they witnessed something in Jesus' passion, perhaps his intensity. There was something there that they wanted. And the reason I tell you this is because I want it too. I think you should want it. And you don't even know what you want. It's because we're humans and many times we just don't have the capacity to know what we actually need. There was an archaeologist who was uh, at a particular site and he was he was digging through the sand and he came across a brass lamp and as he picked it up, a genie came out. This isn't a true story in case you're wondering. And the genie said, okay, I'll give you your third wish. And the guy goes, my third wish? What about my first wish or my second wish? And the genie goes, well, I already gave you your first wish and your wish was so stupid that everything went so poorly, we had to use your second wish to set everything right back to the way things were, which is where we are now. So what's your third wish? And the guy goes, oh, well, I want to be filthy rich. And the genie goes, oh, that's funny. That's exactly what you wished for the first time. So uh, many times the problem is this. We don't know what we want. We think we know what we want, right? And we're going to wish for whatever that might be, right? Sometimes as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, we come before him with prayers, saying this is what I would like, but we treat God as if he was this type of a genie, as if he was this kind of a vending machine that's really about us, that the worship that's really being directed towards him is actually kind of a facade regarding the worship toward us. 
do we really know what we're pursuing when it comes to prayer? I love a quote from Henry Ford. Steve Jobs would later say the same thing, but he said, you know, if I'd asked customers what they wanted, they probably would have told me a faster horse, right, instead of a car, because people don't know what they want. So he makes a car, but no one's ever going to say that, right? What do, we, what do we want? Is it possible that we need something greater than us that's going to guide us into a place of what we want. And the bottom line was this. The disciples knew that their prayers were lacking something, but they didn't know what it was. But they knew that they saw it in Jesus, and they wanted it for themselves. To me, that is the most logical explanation of Luke 11.1. 1. Fred Hartley is an author. He wrote this book called Prayer on Fire. He says this. He says, like little birds chirping in the nest with their beaks open wide, the disciples begged Jesus to teach them what they were seeing when he prayed. Their soul bellies were empty. Their prayer lives were famished and impotent, and they knew it. More than 100 years ago, there was another book written by Andrew Murray called The Prayer Life. And it talks about the greatest sin, or at least what he considers to be one of the greatest sins. And this is what he says. He says, the sin of prayerlessness. The sin of prayerlessness is one of the deepest roots of all evil. In it are embedded all the other sins of pride, arrogance, independence, self-sufficiency, unbelief, and rebellion. And it is the one sin to which we must all plead guilty. The greatest stumbling block in the way of victory over prayerlessness is the secret feeling that we shall never obtain the blessing of being delivered from it. Is that you? Prayer is a funny thing. Many times when we think of prayer, it's not like it stirs up warm, fuzzy feelings inside of us. If that's the case, and I'm going to bet that for perhaps most of us, that's probably the case. You, how, how often do you find yourself in a place where you either invite somebody or you're being invited to a place where you're going to gather up and have some prayer? It's going to be awesome, right? And we're excited about that. I don't think that happens. I, listen, I'm one of those, those preacher guys that kind of just tells it like it is, right? I'm telling you right now, I don't think that's what happens. Why? Now listen, I'm not here to beat you over the head and to make you feel guilty and all the rest of it. That's not what Jesus did, you know? If that's what's happening here, he could have easily scolded them, right? But that's not what he did. We're going to talk about what he did here in just a second. I'm telling you right now, if you feel that way, you have to explore it. You can't ignore it. You have to pursue what is it about prayer that is so important. And do you agree right here with Mr. Murray saying that a life without prayer is one of the greatest roots of evil? I think, I think he could be right. So this is a defining moment. Let's just, let's just look at the question that says, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, as, I mean, they're already looking at Jesus as Lord, as the master, as the teacher, as somebody who knows 
what he's talking about. Somebody with authority, right? Lord, teach. So what is teach? Teach is the same word that they're using for disciple, all right? It describes the very essence of what it means to be in that relationship with the teacher so close as the rabbi-pupil relationship would exist, so close that not only are you learning things, right, but you're learning exactly how to mimic who that rabbi or who that teacher might be. Lord, teach us. I love this particular word, us. He could have easily said, teach me. This is one disciple saying, Lord, teach who? Us, all of us. You know, it's, it's almost like he's going to speak for the group. Uh, it was not just, Lord, teach me to pray. And what's, what's interesting is, is if he had said, Lord, teach me to pray, it still would have been legitimate. You know, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the fact that it could have been legitimate. Even Jesus suggests back in Matthew chapter 6 that when it's time for you to pray, what are you to do? Go into a private room and close the door. Don't make a scene. It's between you and God. So that's legitimate. But in this context, he's saying teach us. Teach us disciples right here. This community that we have to pray. The scriptures actually do not record the disciples ever asking Jesus for instructions about how to preach. Isn't that something? Or how to do, you know, healings, how to raise the dead. You don't even see them asking, how do you walk on water? You know, that would have been a good question for Peter, right? He's just like, oh, I want to get out there, right? Wait, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, that would have been legitimate. No, that's not what you see at all. And you don't see them saying, Lord, teach us about prayer. You don't even see him talking about, Lord, teach us how to pray. They're saying, Lord, teach us to pray. In other words, whatever it is that we've been doing, something's off. So teach us to do it. What's his answer? Well, in verse 2, he says to them, this is Jesus, he says, well, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive anyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. It's almost like an abbreviated form of the same prayer that you would read in Matthew chapter 6. But then he says this. He says, suppose one of you as a friend goes to him at midnight, all right, and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. You can probably imagine a child wakes up crying. <laughs> okay, those of you who have children, you know what I'm talking about. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask. It'll be given to you. Seek. You will find. Knock and it will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, will he not give him a scorpion, will he? Verse 13, if you then, being evil, Jesus didn't hold back. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I love this because what Jesus is doing is this. He's giving them the pattern 
He's given them the pattern before. It's not the pattern that you're necessarily supposed to recite and turn into that robotic type of prayer that once you say it, you're good to go, right? It's kind of like what Mark was talking about earlier. If we're just going through the motions of being in the assembly, if we're just going through the motions of saying this prayer, it does nothing. In fact, in many ways, it could do the opposite. I would almost say it's borderline blasphemy because this is the pattern that he's given us. And I'd like to go through this, but it's not necessarily going to be in today's lesson. But he gives them this particular pattern of just saying, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, and your kingdom come, and your will be done. The picture that he has given them is a parable. And I love the parable that he gives, right? So many of us can relate to it. It's like we're nestled down, Netflix is on, we're watching Stranger Things, and it is a nail-biter, right? And we don't know what's going to happen, all right? And everything is great, it's coming to it, and there's a knock at the door. Now, my parents, they trained us a long time ago that if that somebody knocked at the door, you had to lay aside everything, right? You lay aside everything, and you're going to make sure that you welcome that particular guest in. But that doesn't mean that you like it, Right? And so you can imagine the exact same scenario. Here's this person, and they don't want to get up. They're like, oh, my goodness, I just got the kids in bed, all five of them, you know, and I don't want to do anything. And his, and his point is this. You persist, you're going to get what you want. Imagine a God and a Father who's already willing to give you stuff. So why wouldn't you then be persistent in your prayers? Why wouldn't you use your prayers as an avenue of relationship to bug your heavenly Father? And you could probably read it that way. So he gives them a pattern that we call the Lord's Prayer. He gives them a picture of what tenacity looks like for us. And then he gives them promises. And he tells them back in verse 9, he says, So I say to you, ask, it will be given to you. That's a promise. Seek. Seek Him. Seek truth. Seek perspective. It will be provided. Knock and knock and knock. He promises it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. Him who, knock, who knocks, it will be open. But here's the best part, and it's in verse 13. It's at the end. He says this. If you then, though you are evil, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The Holy Spirit. That's the big aha. You see, they aren't able to identify it. There's something there that they know exists, and they want it. What's interesting is that they catch glimpses of it throughout Jesus' life, but there is a cry inside of their hearts for the very thing that they've been witnessing, whether that was during Jesus' baptism, as it would descend as a dove, right? Or in the other ways in which they would bump into it now and then. But this is what Jesus is telling them. He's saying, all you have to do is ask. You kneel in prayer, and I guarantee you, the things that you're looking for, if you are worshiping who you ought to be worshiping, it'll be given to you. And it's this thing called the Holy Spirit. 
The only hope for any of us to enjoy a meaningful prayer life is to cultivate intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Effective prayer is supernatural. It requires divine intervention. Romans 8 tells us this. It says in the same way that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, but we do not know how to pray as we should. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for, wound, for words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us, the believers, in harmony with God's own will. It's almost like Jesus is saying, you want to learn how to pray? Ask the Father to give you the Holy Spirit. That's the key. You want to pray like me? The Holy Spirit is what's at work. You want to pray as long as I can? It's not going to be up to your discipline. It's up to how much of the Holy Spirit is a part of that equation. During the final week of his life, Jesus taught his disciples extensively about praying under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. Counselor comes with a capital C because it's referencing someone to be with you forever. In John 15, it says, when the counselor, here he comes again, when the counselor comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And in Acts chapter 1, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. He keeps telling them, guess what? It's coming, and you're going to love it. And you just got to be patient for it. So even after Jesus died and then was raised up again, on the third day, and then they had their own type of Easter, uh, can I say hangover? You know, it's like you can imagine the emotions up here and then woo, you know. They're gathering in different places, but they're still not sure what to do. Jesus is appearing in all these different places. We still don't see anything happening necessarily, this, this big testimony of the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. You have a bunch of disciples who are in this upper room, and I think they're probably praying. And then, whoosh, read Acts 2. You will see a magnificent movement of the Holy Spirit. It comes in, and it causes such a disruption. Nobody understands what's going on. They all think that people are drunk. And it's great because Peter launches into a sermon, and he speaks in ways you've never heard Peter speak before. You think that's on his own account? You think an uneducated fisherman who keeps putting his foot in his mouth is capable of bringing thousands of people to the Lord with his eloquence? No, it's the Holy Spirit comes in. And Jesus is saying, this is what I'm promising you. And all you need to do in your prayer is beseech the Holy Spirit. May he live inside of you, and may he have tremendous influence in everything that you do. And I want to just close with this. If you're really going to pray the Lord's Prayer, it is dangerous. We haven't grasped that. It is dangerous. If you really want to understand what the Lord's Prayer is saying, break it down piece by piece. But if you're going to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Maybe your prayer ought to look like this. Lord, what is your will? Lord, what would you have me see? Lord, what would you have me learn? And then perhaps most dangerous of all, 
Lord, what would you have me do? If he's promising the world that his kingdom is coming, I'm here to guarantee you you're a part of that equation. So if the kingdom is going to bring justice to this earth, it very easily and most likely is going to be done through you. Do you have the courage to pray that? That takes courage. Because not only will you beseech the Holy Spirit to provide that clarity, but then you have to step into a choice that says, okay, now that I have the clarity of what I'm supposed to do, will I do it? Will I become a foster parent? Will I walk across the park and meet somebody I don't even know? I could see somebody over here in need. I hate that person. Will I help them and love them anyway? Am I willing to put my comfort at stake? Am I willing to put my life at stake? Or perhaps even worse, am I willing to put my family at stake? Right? Those are the kinds of movements of the Holy Spirit that this type of prayer brings. And my, my question to you is this. Do you have that courage? So we'll pick up on the second half of this next Sunday. I'm just going to leave that with you right now. Great God, thank you so much for what you have given. Lord, you have given us this Bible, and it is difficult to understand. And at the same time, Lord, it's filled with just incredible truth and light. I thank you for the church that you have given, this, this collection of people, and we're all messed up and flawed. We're all sinners, Lord, and we've been ultimately cleansed by Jesus' blood, but through that church, we are able to lean on each other when it comes to understanding this Bible, this, this word that you have given us. And I thank you for that. But Lord, I thank you especially for your Holy Spirit. And it's scary to ask that he would Come and fill me up that he would fill each person here because we don't really know what's going to happen next. Lord, I thank you that through your spirit you allow us to understand this Bible, to extract truth, to share it with others. Lord, I thank you for the fact that the spirit moves in such mighty ways that we can live lives that are extraordinary that are bold, that are courageous. Allow us, God, to seek your will. May you be glorified in all that you have given us. Lord, allow us to use the passages that you have given us to lean on you, to trust, and to understand. who is in heaven hallowed and just glorified be your name your kingdom Lord whatever that is and whatever that might look like may it come and may all that you want whatever your will is Lord may it be done may it be done on earth as it is in heaven on earth in Missoula as it is in heaven Lord, provide. Give us this day our daily bread, and may we continue to give you thanks for that provision that you constantly give us, Lord. May we put our trust in the fact that you will provide. And Lord, forgive us our debts as we also are 
are struggling but will forgive our debtors. May we understand that the debt you have forgiven is so great that it should just flow through us with a type of forgiveness that it doesn't matter what debt, we will forgive our debtors. And then, Lord, I ask that you lead us not into temptation. Please set up a hedge of protection around us. Deliver us from evil. This is such a difficult life in so many different ways. And so we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit gives us courage, but then also protection, Lord. For yours is the kingdom and the power and